Welcome to Name Takes, a podcast about the cultures of naming. From the names of streets to buildings to people and beyond. What are the stories behind certain names? And what causes do specific names promote? Where can the roots of one name or other be found? Could these be invented? In Name Takes, we include artists' voices and cases from the art field. Because in art, meaning-making is central. And most of all, because art helps us formulate better questions about the present. In this episode, we'll talk about name-taking and about how artists take on other names and identities. Hi, I'm your host KM, speaking from Kunstinstitut Meli in Rotterdam. Today, we focus on personal stories. To begin, let me reshare a very recent statement by Rotterdam musician and actor Raven van Dorst. It's about their departure from binary gender systems. Raven uses their as preferred pronoun instead of he or she. Also, they embrace their hermaphrodite identity, which was surgically suppressed shortly after birth. Raven writes, Ik wil het volgende deel van mijn leven ingaan zonder die hokjesdwang. En dat begint met een nieuwe naam. Een naam die mij de vrijheid geeft om te zweven tussen links, rechts, boven en onder. Die past bij de X die ik in mijn paspoort wil krijgen. Een naam die met mij meebeweegt en bij de spiegel past. Een naam die ik zelf kies. Raven. Die. Hen. Kijk maar. Voor Raven, een nieuw name, chosen by themselves is the first step in resisting the pressure to fit into boxes. Their new chosen name moves with them. It allows them to float. In other words, it's coming closer to freedom. There's a long-standing history of artists, often writers, using pseudonyms to get published. Many women often took on male or gender-ambiguous names to be able to participate in intellectual life. Think of George Sand. The nom de plume pour Amantine Lucille Aurore Dupin. And think of the other well-known George, George Eliot. The pseudonym for Mary Ann Evans. And did you know the Bronte sisters first wrote as Curtis, Alice, and Acton Bell? In these cases, a name functioned as a cloak or a camouflage that allowed them to participate in public life and to be taken seriously when doing so. It's a tactic similar to what spies use to do their job and not get burnt. After all, the name's Bond, James Bond. Is just a front. Naming, and especially inventing one's own name, is also part of a creative process. 
It is a way for an artist to develop other personas through which to channel a creative need. A much-cited example is Portuguese author Fernando Antonio Nogueira Pessoa, who is mostly known as Pessoa. He used what he called heteronyms, which literally means other names. Pessoa, who died at the age of 47 in 1935, had over 70 of these names, some of which were Portuguese and legit-sounding, like Ricardo Reis, but others sounded less so, like Uncle Pork or Nymphe Negra. Some of these heteronyms were essayists, others were storytellers, some were contributors to specific publications, some were translators, some wrote in English, and some straddled the line between fictional character and writer. This was a creative game. But this name-shifting was also a tool to air thoughts that might have been considered too extreme or radical at the time. No doubt, assuming a different persona helped Pessoa in his creative process. Join me in meeting Fernanda Laguna in her studio in Buenos Aires. Fernanda is a visual artist, a poet, an organizer, and a novelist. She currently uses three other names besides Fernanda. Dalia Rossetti, when she writes certain stories. Sangrecita, when she makes certain crafts. And Comex Lin when she organizes certain exhibitions. When I asked her how she found or made these names, Fernanda returned the question. Soy o me hago. Am I or do I make myself? It's both, she went on to answer. Dalia, Sangrecita, and Comexlin are not simple fantasies for Fernanda. For her... They are as real as the name Fernanda Laguna. Each identity has an impact on reality. Fernanda often uses percentages to explain how she understands reality. And the same with names. These identities are gradations that can be put into numbers. Sometimes she's 25% Sangrecita and 6% Comexlin. And sometimes it's 80% Dahlia. And other times it's 70% Comexlin and 65% Fernanda. By now, you can probably tell their percentages shift and never add up to 100. Las personas, Fernanda says, También somos porcentajes, digamos. Tenemos un, no sé, que va, siempre varían los porcentajes. Nunca cierran. Todo está en movimiento, incluso el Everything arte no moves. es un, What matters are the relations, estable. not the things or beings in themselves. In our conversation, I also learned that these names don't come with fully developed identities. They start with a very fragile heartbeat and grow in a specific artistic context. Fernanda began using the name Dalia Dorsetti in 1999 
and it was coined along with two other pen names. Margarita Fumero, used by poet Cecilia Pavon, and Lilo Violetsky, used by writer Gabriela Bejerman. The three names were inspired by flowers. Dahlia, for the Dahlia, of course. Rossetti, for the rose. Margarita, for daisy flowers. Lirio, for the lily. And Violetsky, for the violets. They're evidently playing with the cliché of flowery female references. For its part, the name Sangrecita is actually a nickname for a longer name that Fernanda's partner gave her. It came about after she had an almost mystical calling to start working on something beyond art. That was around 2019. The other name, Comexlin, is all written in lowercase, and there's a simonific underscore between Comex and Lin. It is a multiple being that Fernanda, together with the artist and curator Santiago Fianueva, started presenting last year. Of all four names used by Fernanda, Comex Lin is the most tentacular identity. It's a body made with other bodies, and it's constantly changing. What I learned from this exchange with her is that naming is not a simple, aha, I got it invention. It involves others, and it is a creation. It's a process of birthing, failing, and transforming. It's also a way of circumventing an art market, where single names translate into monetary value and social capital. Fernanda's clear. El mercado del arte, me di cuenta de que es un eh, como un eh, un sistema y el saber que uno puede vender y vivir de eso que te coarta muchísimo. But a human being, she says, is not a plan you can pot and simply plays on a balcony. Todos somos, pero como seres múltiples, no la identidad única para mí es como en un momento va a ser como pasada de moda. With this forecast that in the future we will have multiple identities and most likely multiple names, I meet up with Wong Kiti. She's at her home in Hong Kong. Like Fernanda, she uses several first names. Kiti, which is her given name, and Ali, which some people pronounce as Ali, like the Middle Eastern man's name and others pronounce it as Ali, as if it's an abbreviation of Allison. When I ask her how I should call her, she doesn't give me a clear answer. She says, You know, I'm kind of like interested in like, you know, like being one person with these two names and like how, how this living between these two names and two places or even more like would, would bring to my life. So, 
I decided to use Keith Yee. Keith Yee has multiple names for completely different reasons than Fernanda. Her given name came from a Feng Shui consultation shortly after her birth. My name, Kit Yi, K-I-T-Y-I, um, yeah, was chosen by my parents from, you know, a list of potential lucky names uh, recommended by Feng Shui Master in Hong Kong. Kit, that they really she explains, trust. means pure, and Yi means suitable. So my name being picked is kind of based on um, they expect that it will, it will help my father's business. That means her name is related to the family's well-being, which brings her to ask, Is name actually personal or is it actually collective? You know, um, is it for the personal purpose or for the collective purpose? It's an open-ended question that I wasn't ready for. And that applies to much of what we've been talking about so far. So I'll leave it here as something we can hopefully return to later. The story of how the name Ali came into the world is no less telling. It's important to know that Kiti grew up in Hong Kong when it was still a British territory before the handover to China in 1997. She went to an English-speaking high school where many of her peers already had English first names. And my English name um, was given by my uh, English teacher because she was, I actually can't remember now, I think, I think she was either from Scotland or from British, uh, from UK. So, uh, so because she couldn't remember every single one's name in the class and we have uh, around 40, you know, 40 students in the class. So she couldn't remember our Chinese name. So, so of course, some of the, my classmates' parents would you know, would, would assign English name for them. But because my my parents, like, um, they they actually went through like cultural revolution. So they didn't really go to, they didn't, they didn't really go to school when they were little and, and there were no school for them to go. So they didn't, didn't really know English. So my teacher started to, you know, open up this dictionary and she started assigning name for the kids that, that who doesn't got a name from the parents. So my name is, um, my name, the, the name I got is A-L-I. Um, okay, you can call it like Ali or Ali. To be honest, when I heard Ali's naming story, I was shocked by the teacher's colonial laziness. By the fact that she supposedly couldn't remember or pronounce her students' Chinese names. But Kiti wasn't so surprised. It, uh, in my generation, it w- was very common to pick a, uh, a, a an English name. People will think that if you have an English name, um, then you belong to a certain class or, you know... As a teenager, she felt the violence of the English name, mostly because it tended to misgender her. She remembers how she would ask angrily. Why? I was like, why? Why this guy's name was being put onto me? But now, as a more established artist, she takes a step back and turns the tables. She makes it a question for the person who uses her name rather than one for herself. That whole colonization history is always going to be, you know, attached to my my timeline. And 
I, um, I just try to, you know, be more positive um, and see, as I mentioned that, you know, I, I wouldn't mind people to call me Ellie or Ali. And I think um, I would want to see how people uh, insert or project their idea into this name. Name shifting relates to creation, to ways of overturning colonial expectations. But name changing is often also part of other difficult transformations without a neatly cut before and after. I'm mainly referring to the experience of trans people here. It just seems so hard given that to like wipe everything clean. Like Mm -hmm. it seems like there's always going to be something that remains or, you know, that still ties you back to the past, you know? And the name is just like one of these things. This is Anne Duplan, a Black trans masculine poet who lives in Brooklyn. He's talking about name changing and transitioning in the age of internet and social media, about how even if you legally change your gender and name, Images of your pre-transition self still wildly circulate. You have to live with what An calls the disjuncture. An publishes his poetry and essays as Anaïs Duplan, which is his given birth name. An, the name he uses otherwise, is an abbreviation of his legal first name. On An's driver's license, the gender marker is male, but the first name is female. This ID, he says, settles the disjuncture. It holds together two parts of his life. But there's definitely also discomfort at times. I still think about it sometimes, changing my name, when I get annoyed with being misgendered based on my name. At multiple moments in our conversation, Anne reminds me of context of how names place you in a social reality that comes with certain expectations for cis and trans folks alike. The fact that he kept his name is hard to understand for some people, allies included. But then he asks, The idea of like losing a name that I love so much just to make things easier for other people was like, why would I do that? He also emphasizes that I mean, there's so many changes that come with transitioning also that keeping something felt really, uh, like, soothing. I was reminded of a text by critic Paul V. Preciado describing his name change and gender affirmation experience in Spain. At birth, he was identified as female and called Beatriz. And with his transition, his birth certificate had to be destroyed. And his new male name had to be published among the names of newborn babies. In other words, his transition and renaming process legally involved registering 
the death of Beatrice and the birth of Paul. The law simply did not accept his trans body. Against this denial, Preciado ends his text with these affirmative words. My trans body turns against the language of those who name it in order to deny it. It exists. Names, like language, can be apparatuses of denial. With that in mind, I ask Ann whether keeping his name also meant affirming his authorship, an identity that circulates on book covers or event announcements, but that also exists as a creative, aesthetic, intellectual experience that he may not want to abandon. Part of it is practical and part of it is more um, based in like the, the, the world of ideas. So when I just, I'll get the practical out of the way because it's kind of simpler, but um, when I started transitioning, I had already published two books, a book and a chapbook and done a bunch of stuff and, and, and everybody sort of knew me by one name. I think that like this comes up for um, uh, people who were married and took the name of their spouse and then get divorced, like, and, but like published a lot under like the name that they had when they were with their spouse. So a sense of like wanting there to be continuity for people who were following my work um, and not like a sense of confusion around like, what is this person's name now? Or, um, and I know other trans people who also are professional poets or creative people who kind of just go through with changing their name and, and everyone figures it out. And, um, but so this is where the more like idea-based part of it came in for me, where I was like for a long time thinking about different names and there was no name that I liked as much as Anais. Like I looked at so many names and I was like, these names are cool, but like uh, I've already had a set of experiences with the name Anais that I I cherish and 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 so it was like, well, what's the reason for changing my name? Is it to make things simpler for other people or for me? Um, because if it's for me, I can just have a nickname, which is what I did, and I go by On, um, which is kind of like my gender neutral. A result of this clear distinction is that now his name has also become a way to create some distance from his professional self. I also find the idea of like taking, having a work-life separation to be more and more useful. Not such a bad thing, especially in a time when we're all pretty much working from our bedrooms. In the end, what I understand is that for Anne, Names are not only legal, but mostly interpersonal realities. To keep my name as Anais is also, it's like a very social choice, you know, like it's very rooted in like what experience, not only what experience will this create for me, but like what experience will it create for other people? I started out this episode by asking these artists about name changing. But our conversations naturally evolved into talking about name shifting, about multiplicities, 
and mostly about how a name, whether new or old, shaped what you do and for whom you do it. Before we leave, let me share a beautiful text with you. It's written and read by an artist who lives in Stockholm and who penned this shortly after changing their name from Emily Roitzen to Every Ocean Use. It was a slow, persistent desire, a process rolling over me. It was everywhere, it was nowhere exactly, but it didn't go away. I had been softly considering it for 20 years. I used to fantasize about it together with my mom. We'd sit on her bed and make lists. She understood that I didn't need my father's name. I didn't really know him, and so why, with all the love that I have and have been given, Am I identified with a name I don't have a living connection with? Many people have this disorientation through estranged family, gender assignments, and the impacts of colonial and slave histories. Names can be a place where people claim, define, and exercise power over others. I've written a new one for myself, a new sentence, Every Ocean Hues. Ocean is giving me space as I go about telling people that I feel differently. As a sound, a space, a shape, a territory in the middle of my new name, I asked for it. But I made this change without understanding it completely. And whenever someone says every ocean hues, I am surprised to hear it. Willful and blind, I announced my new name thinking people would skim over ocean and that it would be just for me, like some form of shelter. And a part of me feels that I still don't know, can't believe you know, have heard, and are calling me that. My first disorientation could appear to be a classic single-parent story, but I'm happy to say there is an unconventional punchline. I have three moms. My mom, her best friend, and my grandmother raised me, and now I have taken a name from that lineage. Hughes was my grandmother's name. She was Welsh born into a family of singers and boat captains. She was my emotional home. I helped her die. And when she died, I didn't think about it anymore. I felt it, and I stepped into her name. I've wondered what she would think about this whole thing. She was humble, gentle, generous, quick to laugh, comfortable in silence. Music soothed her. Everything could be talked about. She knew her own struggle and met it in others. She would have understood. When she was dying, I used my hands to soothe her, stroked her hair and head. On her last day, I kissed her forehead, and she said, I know you love me. A little while later, she said, I just want to get out of my own way. Enid loved the ocean. When she wasn't living with us, she lived on the ocean. She revered and feared it, never once going in above her ankles, even though she sat quietly on its shores for a lot of her life. My family, funnily shaped and rarely sharing space, would gather at the ocean. We, grandmother, mother, other mother, brother, other brother, and me, we used to know where to find my dad. Even if he hadn't come around in a long time, we could find him on 12th Street. He didn't really communicate much. He's deaf, and phones are difficult. And so when I was young, we'd go there to check in on him. 
I'm surprised to be writing this, but changing my name is paradoxically making me think about him more than ever. I remember the first time I moved away from home to go to school and we were introducing ourselves through family narrative and geography. I said my dad was a beach boy. In that privileged environment, the other new students thought I meant beach boy, as in pop harmony beach boys. But what I was saying was I grew up visiting my father in the sand while he rented umbrellas and boogie boards every sunny day from his mid-teens through his 40s. It was the only job I'd ever known him to have until later when he tried to open a health food store between an industrial chicken factory and a Coca-Cola plant on a long rural road in rural Maryland. After the years of visiting him, knowing he was with the umbrellas on 12th Street and then at the health food store, which was short-lived, I lost track of where he was. I only know a few things. I know he's always stayed close to the water. I know he made a campaign sign in 2012 that was pro-Obama against Mitt Romney and had flip-flops hanging from it. I know he's alienated from everyone he's ever known. I don't know where he gets money to survive. I don't know how lonely he is or if he likes being alone. I don't know if I'll ever see him again. I've chosen to change my name away from the one he and I have shared, yet he still seems to be a part of the story and has a place in my new name. Apparently there is a lot of room in Ocean, even for alcoholic dads. Changing a name is negotiating history family, inheritance, but I've mostly thought of the spaces it opens up. I'm 41 years old, and instead of consolidating my narrative, I've dropped the thread. I've taken pleasure in not knowing how to introduce myself, stuttering between names. Pleasure in the moment of recognition when someone says this new name and I get to reply. Pleasure in knowing that some people won't know that I've also been Emily Royston, and just being every in front of them is fine. The questions of administration of self are also opportunities for complexity, messiness, simultaneity. I'm embracing these to be more than one thing. I think each person who changes their name invents their own individualized method, but I can say in my case that having friends as role models opened a world of courage. I was animated by the spirit of queer invention. Queer invention, feminist lives, gay art history, gay beaches. A few weeks before Enid died, I was on Fire Island staying in a collective house of friends. It was absolutely my heaven. No cars and lots of nudity. The gay beach of my dreams. Friends galore. I remember one afternoon in particular. After a morning of group swimming and beachiness, people settled into solo afternoon activities. I was in the double-height living room, standing by the windows looking at the ocean. After a while, maybe 30 minutes, Nicole Eisenman, who had been nearby painting, looked up and asked me if I was working. At first I thought she was making fun of me. I felt a flash of formless next to her masterful form. But then I realized that Nikki respected my process. She saw it and named it. For a few years... I've been writing about transitions, about not being the thing itself, uncounted experience, waves expressing the contour of their bottoms, 
and finding long-lost things underwater that could shift dominant paradigms and ordering energies. I made work about a live time. Then I helped my beloved sister, mother, grandmother die, and that experience shifted my ordering energies. To be a part of helping someone have a good death has been the most meaningful thing I've ever done. And since then, I've been thinking about something called queer death, wondering what it could mean and building a platform to understand it. Many years ago, Enid was in her mid-80s and she visited me in New York City to attend her first LTTR event. The next morning, she said, You wouldn't have known anyone was any different, read, queer, if they hadn't all been so nice to each other. She was attuned to enthusiasms and kindnesses, where she could find them. Being kind was queer. Helping someone you love die is queer. Changing my name is a kind of queer death. I got out of my own way. And that's where we'll leave it for now. Join us for our next episode of Name Takes, a podcast about the culture of naming. As always, thank you for listening. Yours, KN. Name Takes is produced by Kunstinstitut Melli in Rotterdam. Thanks to a grant from a donor who wishes to remain unnamed. Research and writing for this podcast by Sara de Meuse and Sofia Hernandez Choncoy. Special thanks to artists Fernanda Laguna, Wunkit Yi, Anaïs Duplon, and Every Ocean Hughes for participating in this episode. Every Ocean's text was originally written for Failed States Journal in December 2018. Our gratitude goes to Akena Wilson for performing KM and to Judith Schools for performing select citations. Voice recording, mixing and original music created by Jan Pohl at Okapi Recordings in Rotterdam. Mastered by Masterenzo Mastering. Production management was overseen by Wendy van Slagmaat Bos and communication and marketing by Jeroen Laven. Kunstinstitut Melli is supported by the Ministry of Education and Culture in the Netherlands and the city of Rotterdam. Additional funding is procured through admission tickets, sales of publications, foundation grants and individual donations. For more information, please visit kunstinstitutmelly.nl.